Welcome to the Exhibit A podcast. Welcome again to Exhibit A, where we're going to talk to you about some interesting family law topics and some other legal topics that you may be interested in and hopefully you'll find entertaining. Today, I have the privilege of bringing in my partner, Patrick Bagdasarians, who I've had the privilege of working with for over a decade. Good morning, sir. Good morning, sir. How Th- are you? Good. Thank you for taking your time or <laughs> taking time out. You're the, probably the busiest guy I've ever seen, and uh, it's hard to get you into this room, but we finally made it, so I'm, yeah. I'm really thrilled to have you. So, so Patrick and I are going to talk about a very important family law uh, issue, and that deals with? Transmutation. Okay. Now can you speak English, sir? So transmutation is, it's like, it's a legal term uh, for essentially changing ownership interests in a property during a marriage, uh, and it usually involves switching separate property to community property or community property to separate property. And a lot of times we're talking about the family residence, right? Most of the time we're talking about the family residence, okay. correct. Okay. Before we get into that, let's talk about you. Okay. Patrick, uh, you have uh, always amazed me at your resourcefulness. Uh, so many people who don't know Patrick, and there's not many people that don't know Patrick in the family law world, but uh, you're the master of disaster, the guy who, <laughs> who could handle any kind of a complicated family law matter. Uh, you're really uh, very adept at digging into complicated cases, property cases. Uh, your background is interesting. You, were, uh, you are a graduate of Loyola Mary. Marymouth, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah, Loyola then, Marymount University. Correct. And then you went to Southwestern University. Correct. And you're presently the board chair. Uh, I'm, if I'm saying this wrong, I apologize. The chair of the Southwestern uh, Foundation. Well, yeah, I, I'm. Uh, I'm a graduate of Southwestern Law School here in Los Angeles, downtown LA. Uh, I'm uh, a board member of the uh, alumni board of directors. I've been a board member for about, I would say, about three and a half years. Uh, I'm actually the president-elect of the alumni board. Okay, okay. Uh, and, but I think that what you were talking about uh, referencing was the uh, Domestic Violence Advocacy Initiative, yeah. uh, which is a, uh, it's a program created through uh, my efforts with the board of directors, and it's a pro bono program meant to raise money on a yearly basis in order pr- to provide financial stipends for newly minted lawyers, meaning lawyers with zero to three years of experience, to go work at nonprofit organizations, uh, addressing and fighting and advocating on behalf of victims of domestic violence. Uh, I'm very proud of this program. The program has been in place for about two years now, and um, the board, the Southwestern Alumni Board, has partnered with Levitt and Quinn, one of the largest uh, nonprofit family law uh, organizations in the state of California, providing pro bono help to thousands of people incredible. over the years. Yeah. Very incredible. So that's one of the things that, and you're right, I did get them confused. Now, you've recently also been elected, I guess, for lack of a better term, to be the, you're the president-elect of, to be the chair, I guess. Right? Uh, well, no. Pre- the president. President-elect of the alumni board of um, um, Southwestern Law School. So, and what is that going to require you to do? Well, I'm going to be the head of the entire board of directors for the alumni board, and um, I will not only be spearheading, uh, spearheading uh, and continuing to help run the, the domestic violence advocacy initiative, but I will also be kind of in charge of the other functions of the board, which include outreach to non-law students. Uh, literally, we the school reaches out to people even in high school, 
and tries to help promote the law, promote the law school. Uh, uh, the program, the, uh, the board also helps put on CLEs and other outreach programs for new lawyers. Uh, so it's uh, they, they do a lot more than simply just the uh, Domestic Violence Advocacy Initiative, which is a significant part of the board. But needless to say, my duties will be in, uh, increasing tenfold. So yeah. I'm yeah. fortunate enough to have a, a, a team of people here at the law firm who help uh, not only with my cases, but help kind of, uh, you know, help me balance my calendar and balance my schedule. Uh, well, in yeah. addition to that, you've got the most incredible wife on the planet. And, oh, yeah, and Two beautiful children. So you've got a strong family supporting you as well that Correct. believe in you and, and are okay with you being the wild man you are. <laughs> so good. Okay, so let's uh, delve into this topic. So let's just get some basics out of the way. In family law, a lot of times clients will come to us, new clients, and they'll say, look, I don't know what I'm going to get out of this. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, when I sign that deed over to my wife because we refinance property, does that mean that it's my wife's property now or, you know, some other type of a scenario? So we're really talking about a term of art that you already talked about. It's transmutation, transmutation of property, either community to separate or separate of the community. And it's kind of complicated. So so this is going to be a little bit wonky, right? You know, we normally don't do this on the show is get real wonky. But this is one of those areas that if people really want to know about this, they're going to have to kind of dig in a little bit here. Yeah. So can you explain, um, first of all, you know, what is the basic requirement for a valid transmutation? So um, a transmutation is something really unique to family law and, and specifically people going through divorce. It applies to them. Okay, and it's governed by the family code, specifically governed by family code section 852. So the legislature over the years, they've, they've realized like, hey, people sign documents during the marriage. It's quite often, it's common, you know, you, you trust your spouse, you trust, uh, your spouse gives you something to sign and, and yada, yada. Uh, because of this reality that people, uh, when they're in a marital relationship, quite often sign documents related to property, the legislature, which uh, helped craft a code section that really tries to protect uh, uh, the person signing the document, essentially. And, and they want to make sure that people are not slipping into a situation where they're giving up property rights. Um, so 852 was created years ago. And since the creation of 852, we've had a slew of uh, appellate decisions coming out interpreting 852. Now, you're right. This is a little bit of a a complicated area. It's uh, I wouldn't recommend a pro per trying to litigate a transmutation issue, right. definitely, because right. it's very intricate. And it has a large body of law. You would be surprised. I mean, I know you wouldn't be surprised, Dom, but... Uh, so most lawyers would be surprised, and maybe not a lot. Maybe some inexperienced family law lawyers would know would be surprised to know how much uh, intricacy goes into this and, and, and nuances that that pop up. And the reality is, you got to be careful. And and when you're uh, in a situation where you're getting a divorce and you have a, a document that was signed. Um, relinquishing property rights, you want to make sure you talk to someone who's experienced. And I, I would always recommend talking to a certified family law specialist because you don't want to you don't want to mess this up. It, it could it have a dramatic impact on the uh, not only your case but on the rest of your life if you're waiving uh, an interest in, for example, the uh, former family residence. Quite often, the former family residence is the most valuable asset in a case. Right. So. The bottom line is I'll, I'll kind of steal language from uh, one of the appellate decision that came down about four or five years ago called Lafkis. Uh, they don't the, the legislature and the courts they don't want you to slip into a, a transmutation. 
They want you to know that your property rights are changing, and they want you to be cognizant of that reality. So then when you sign the document, you're not surprised later on down the line. So let, let me stop you there. Really, then, 852 was designed to really create evidence when people really intend on transmitting yeah. property. It's not, when you say not slip into it, it's kind of like don't get tricked into Co- it. In correct. So, so yeah. now let's talk about a deed that doesn't work, and let's talk about a case that you recently brought up to the appellate court, and you won. You were actually Correct. able to reverse a trial court's decision on a, on a particular deed, and we're extremely proud of that. And right now, from what I understand, is it's pending possible public, uh, publication of, of, Correct. The, of the decision. Um, you know, uh, we appealed the case. Uh, the, the, the name of the case is Begian versus Sarajian. Right. Uh, and um, I had a co-counsel, uh, Gary Daly from Oakland, California, uh, a great co-counsel, worked really well together over the past few years. The process started about... I would say almost two and a half years ago, and we got resolution, and we were essentially vindicated on, I believe, December twentieth, two thousand and eighteen. It was a it was a fantastic Christmas gift for uh, <laughs> myself and my client, and uh, we were very happy about it. And uh, we really believed in this cause. I was the uh, trial lawyer. Uh, I was the lawyer who represented uh, Mr. Bagian on the uh, trial level, and. I remember, like it was yesterday, when we had the bifurcated trial as to whether or not a certain document uh, complied with 852 and whether or not it was a transmutation. Talk, talk to us about the facts of the case a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so basically um, um, the, the parties were married for about, I would say, what, twenty over 20 years. During that time, they had two wonderful boys, um, and I believe one's in medical school, the other one's on his way to medical school. Great kids. And, um, you know, they, they did what most people do uh, in their situation. They're both professionals. One's an engineer. One's an optometrist. You know, they invested well. They saved their money. And um, during the marriage, uh, the, the opposing party uh, and my client uh, obtained a real property residence. And it was a small residence. Uh, they inherited uh, the property over the years from a family member. And uh, they received ownership of it uh, by way of a grant deed in the, I believe, in the late 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. And upon receipt of the ownership of this property, my client and opposing party, but mostly my client, um, spent a a lot of their own money, a lot of the, uh, not only separate property assets that my client had from various sources, but also money earned during the marriage to add a bunch of square feet to the house. I mean, he took the house from like a 2,000 square foot house to make it almost 4,000 square feet. Spent a considerable amount of money. Uh, thinking, yeah, this is our family residence, and this is where we're going to live for the rest of our lives. And they built a beautiful home, raised two uh, beautiful kids. And during the marriage, I believe in 2006, uh, my client was approached um, by his wife uh, to start uh, state planning. They had two boys. I believe at that time the boys were, uh, I want to say, eight or nine. And my client was on board. Makes sense, right? And they have uh, a family residence uh, at the time. was It was not as valuable as it is today, but it was a significant asset. In 2006, the market was pretty hot. And you're talking about a, a million plus. Um, so my client says, you know, totally makes sense. Let's do estate planning. Wife spearheads the efforts and brings to my client a document that says uh, title trust transfer deed. Okay. Title, say it again. Trust transfer deed. Trust transfer deed. Okay. Okay. Okay, notice this is one of the deeds I addressed earlier. Um, this is not uh, a deed normally u- utilized. Uh, this type of deed is normally not utilized to transfer ownership interests. Between spouses. Correct. Yeah. Or anyone, frankly. Right. I mean, this type of deed is normally utilized when you're what? Estate planning, when you're setting up a trust. 
So my client gets the document and looks at the document. And what's the first thing uh, uh, most reasonable people would do when they're provided a document? Read the title. Okay. Right. So my client reads the title. And my client is a, he, he's an educated individual. Uh, he's handled some other property issues in the past, you know, rental property and so on and so forth. So he reads the title. It doesn't say quick claim deed. doesn't say grant deed. doesn't say interspousal transfer deed. doesn't say any of that. It says trust transfer deed. And this comes on the, uh, uh, on the tails of them talking about estate planning. So most reasonable people would say, well, this is for estate planning. Right. This is right. for no other reason. Right. I'm not giving up ownership interest. Then you read the the body of the deed itself. Right. When you go down from the title and you read it, it says husband grants to wife. That's it. It doesn't say husband grants to wife as sole separate property. Nothing of that sort. No language is indicated in there to put my client on notice that his property rights are changing. So uh, this was uh, still, uh, at uh, about two years ago when we had the bifurcated trial, this was still the major asset in the, in the divorce. You're talking about almost uh, a 4,000-square-foot house in Glendale, California, paid off pr- practically, right? So uh, this is over a $1.5 million asset potentially, maybe even closer to two, you know? So that was pretty wonky. That was pretty cool, though. I, I loved watching that. It, it seems like, for me, the time went by really fast. I didn't realize that two, almost two years had yeah. elapsed, but yeah, because I remember <laughs> when you started that, and we got the result. So um, with respect to the analysis, you know, we talk about a transmutation on paper, but there's a second and a third part of this, this uh, Correct. analysis. Can you explain that to people that want to know? And this is, this is probably why more than ever you need an attorney. So explain that process. <clears throat> yeah. So the, it does, you know, transmutation is only one part. So let's say, hypothetically speaking, we're in that situation that you uh, proposed earlier, where you said, well, what if a husband asks a wife, hey, sign this document, we need to refinance the house and sign this quick claim deed or this interspousal transfer deed. Those documents, they most 99 out of 100 times, they pass the test. You know, uh, almost every single uh, interspousal transfer deed that I've seen or utilize has an express declaration. It's very clear. It's unambiguous. It puts you on notice that property rights are changing. Now, um, now it, hope, fortunately, uh, it doesn't end there. So let's say you do sign a document giving up your ownership rights, right? And, it, and it's a valid transmutation, right? <clears throat> Fortunately, you still have another bite at the apple because if you're giving ownership rights up during a marriage, it triggers something else. If there's no consideration provided to you in relinquishing your property rights, and let me give you an example. Let's say husband comes to wife, sign this quick claim deed to give me ownership of this property so I can refinance. If your husband doesn't give you consideration, meaning any sort of thing of value, money, or some other asset, then what happens is that uh, it triggers a fiduciary duty violation issue. Specifically, it uh, triggers the issue of undue influence. And then the burden is on the party who asked you to sign the document for them to demonstrate by preponderance of the evidence that not only did you know what you were signing, you had ample time to review it. You fully understood it, but you had the opportunity to consult with a lawyer. That's what the case law has told us. And this is uh, very important. Uh, over the years, uh, uh, multiple published cases have dealt with this. I believe it started off with uh, Star versus Star, if I'm not mistaken. It was a, uh, a case that I believe came out of uh, L.A. County as well in Pasad- from Pasadena. It was an appellate right. decision. And, um, you know, it, it's 
those types of decisions, like Star versus Star and the uh, cases that came after that, they really try to protect the uh, the parties involved, specifically the individual signing the document, um, to make sure that even if they did sign something of uh, that had a valid transmutation, that the buck doesn't stop there. So what are they looking for? They're looking for undue influence, right? Yeah, and remember who Volun- the- Voluntary, you're signing it voluntary, correct. knowingly- Correct, and 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 remember who the uh, the burden is on. It shifts to the the person who prevail or who gets the benefit of the transaction. Correct, it's right? the person. For example, in this situation of if there's a quick claim need being signed, it's the individual who asks you to sign that, and uh, they have to demonstrate that you so knew. What is the court going to look for if it's determining <clears throat> whether or not there was undue influence or lack of voluntariness? Well, they would look at the asset, what's being transferred, if it's a the family residence, the main asset of the case, that's going to be very important. They're going to look to see if you, uh, the, the circumstances around why you signed the document. Was there a refinance going on? Okay, so let's, let's uh, wind this down by talking about the last prong of the analysis, and that's the right for reimbursement. So even yeah. if you have a valid paper transmutation, even if there was no duress, there's a third part of the analysis. Could you explain that? Yeah. Uh, if you're, for example, giving up ownership rights and uh, ownership rights in, let's say, at a property, uh, the court, uh, pursuant to uh, Family Code Section 2640, provides you the opportunity to seek reimbursement for what you gave up, essentially. Um, usually with uh, um, uh, with property rights, you'll have to get appraisals, and you'll, get, you'll have to justify and demonstrate what the value of your asset was that you gave up. Or what the community value was, and you get one half of that at the time of the transmutation. Correct, correct. Okay, so very complicated. We don't expect people to be doing this by themselves, but we're presenting this really so folks know that this is a major issue in family law, and it's probably not something you want to do at home, kids, right? I mean, you probably want some attorneys to help you with this. I really appreciate you coming and doing this today. I know that you've got a lot of cases waiting for you. Uh, it was really fun. It was very uh, informative. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you for being on our program. And we'll see you next time on Exhibit A. Exhibit A is produced by David Lindley at the law offices of Donald P. Schweitzer in Pasadena, California. For more information, visit us online at PasadenaLawOffice.com and all social media platforms.